Tonight we're going to hear about one thing that has driven people to go on the greatest quests, the, the biggest search to, you know, where they deny themselves, they sacrifice this and that, they, they focus all of their efforts on just one thing. It's the one appetite, the one desire that actually grows stronger within you as you get older. And it's the reason that John wrote this gospel that we're reading. Our text today promises us eternal life. It's a big call, isn't it? Uh, It's not my claim. It's actually what the Bible's telling us here. And tonight, we've pretty much come to the end of John's gospel. All that remains after this little chunk, just two verses tonight... All that remains is chapter 21, the last chapter, and that's like an an, an epilogue. It's not unimportant, not at all, but in terms of the main message of John's gospel, we have arrived at the punchline. It's the punchline. What happens is John ties together all of the strands of his book and he brings them together in these words, which we've just read. And our time tonight is just going to focus in on unpacking what we've got in front of us. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the the preface to this punchline, John says, look, there's a whole lot of things that are not recorded here. Uh, John hasn't in his gospel included, you know, like a detailed biography of Jesus. There's no family tree. There's no, uh, you know, account of Jesus' childhood, no account of his youth. We have no idea what Jesus made in his dad's carpentry woodshop. We don't know that. Um, Who knows how many people Jesus actually healed? We're not told. Who knows what happened When Jesus entered into death, did hell freeze over? Did Satan run and hide? Or did evil spirits mock Jesus when he went there? We don't know. Our knowledge of Jesus preserved in the Gospels is not comprehensive. But it is very tightly focused. The signs recorded in John's Gospel have been selected for a very particular purpose. And to really fully grasp what John's purpose is, we're going to have to pull apart this punchline, as I've called it, to John's Gospel. So, first of all, the thing that we notice here is that Jesus calls Jesus mirac- sorry, John calls Jesus miraculous actions. He calls them signs. And the thing about a sign is that we've missed the point if all we do is look at the sign. Signs are meant to kind of capture our attention and then direct our attention somewhere else. That's how signs work. I know it sounds very exciting, but that's the point. If you think, if you kind of get to the sign that says Roseville and you look at the sign and go, hmm, not very impressive, not much here in Roseville. No, no, that's not the point. The sign is saying go this way to get to Roseville. In the same way, this is not St. Andrew's Church. Right? It's just a sign out the front. This is St. Andrew's Church. This is St. Andrew's Church. This is St. Andrew's Church. Shout out to the Winter Camp guys who made a photo there. Right? It's good. 
Okay? Signs are important. They grab our attention. But if you just stay with a sign and you don't move on to the thing that the sign is pointing to, then you've missed out on something super important. And so as we look back now over the signs that John has recorded for us, that he's selected from all of the ones that he might have chosen, it turns out that there are seven signs in John's Gospel. Scholars seem to agree, yes, seven signs. They can't agree which the seven are. But anyway, here's, here's kind of a summary of what I think the seven signs in John's Gospel are. first one is where Jesus changes the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. The second sign is where Jesus heals a royal official's son in Capernaum. The third sign uh, seems to be that... Do you remember the guy who was you know, lying by the pool at Bethesda for 38 years, couldn't get in the water to get healed? Jesus heals him. Oh, and by the way, it's a Sabbath. The fourth sign, I think, is the feeding of the 5,000 in the wilderness, followed by Jesus walking back across the Sea of Galilee on top of the water. The fifth sign seems to be uh, the man who was born blind. Jesus heals him, once again, in the temple on the Sabbath. Sixth sign seems to be the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And the seventh, Jesus' cross and resurrection. So each of these seven signs grabs our attention. But remember, they have a significance far beyond themselves. They actually tell us more about Jesus. So, for example, we could just say, oh, wow, isn't it exciting that Jesus can feed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fishes, and then he can walk across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, that's quite remarkable. Well done. Hmm. We've missed the point, right? Jesus is more than a miracle chef with superpowers. Okay, What it's saying, this sign is saying, here is the new Moses. Jesus is doing what Moses did. He's, he's fed God's people with bread from heaven in the wilderness, just like Moses did in the Exodus. And Jesus has miraculously crossed the sea, the Sea of Galilee, just like Moses miraculously was able to cross the Red Sea in the Exodus. So the sign's not really about fish and bread and aqua sports, right? It's, it points, here's the new Moses. Here is God's person who is going to lead you to salvation. Into partnership, into covenant with God. No longer will you be slaves to sin. You'll be free to be God's people. That's what that sign's about, right? So... As, as we're reading now just these last couple of verses here at the end of chapter 20, do you notice how in verse 30 Jesus, uh, John says, there were many other signs, other signs. So he, what he's saying is if you kind of wind that back, well, hang on a minute, that which we've just read in the first part of chapter 20, that's a sign. The resurrected Jesus presenting himself to his disciples with holes in his hands and his side. And when his disciples, Thomas declares him, you're my Lord and my God, that's a sign. That's the final and the greatest sign in John's gospel. And supremely, this sign points to something more. It's remarkable. It's wonderful. Jesus, you're not dead anymore. You've risen from the dead. That's fantastic. That's a sign that takes us to something much greater, 
Something far bigger than that. We're going to get to that in a bit. For now, though, John's purpose is clear. He says, these signs are written that you may believe. That's the purpose that has shaped the selection of those seven signs. Jesus, sorry, John wants the readers, every reader of his book, everyone here tonight, to believe on the basis of what he's recorded for us. And I want to explain that for just a little bit. What do we mean by believe? What actually is it to have faith, the condition of belief? Well, let me tell you first by saying what faith is not. Faith is not wanting something to be true, even though you know it's not. Okay, so it sounds like pretty obvious, but you see it sometimes, you know, where people say, oh, you've just got to believe this. Faith is not trying very hard to convince yourself of something that you know is wrong. That's not faith. Self-deception, that's what that is. And faith is not belief in the face of sound evidence to the contrary. You see, Christian faith is based on verifiable evidence. It's credible. It's actually open to reason. So... Uniquely, Christianity invites any thinking person to investigate its truth claims. Okay, so this, Jesus Christ, he's, he's, an embedded, he's embedded in history. He's a real person in a real place at a known time with, with identifiable contemporary eyewitnesses. Okay, you don't have to be coming along to St. Andrews at Roswell for very long to know that. You know, not only do we have the Bible, but we have all of this historical evidence from contemporary eyewitnesses that sit right alongside it and which mesh together to build a very credible case. We love our history here. So Christian faith is actually reasonable and it's credible. Faith is also not just mental assent, just not saying, oh yeah, that's true, but without commitment. We don't say yes, but we do nothing about it here. Faith begins with a commitment followed by an action. Now, uh, I went to a wedding uh, yesterday, and I know a few people in the room went to the same wedding. And uh, during the ceremony, um, Sam and Anna promised that they would be husband and wife and that they would forsake all others. Okay, So they had, they had arrived at a point in their relationship where they decided, you know what, in a field of many, many people who we could potentially marry, we're actually walking away from all the rest and we're committing each other to just this one person. And who knows for those guys, is it going to be great or not? You know, they like better, worse. Richer, poorer. Sickness, health. They don't know. They don't know if there could be somebody better out there for them. But knowing what they do know about each other, they took action. And they committed themselves to each other, forsaking all the rest. So faith is a commitment that leads to this action. That's what faith is. Okay. There's one more thing that faith is not. Faith is not pure logic. That is logic in the classical sense. Uh, it's not the conclusion to an irrefutable, 
sequence of arguments that is derived from first principles. Christian faith does not and it refuses to compel belief. When Jesus was asked for a sign from heaven to demonstrate his divine credentials, he he actually refused. Now, he's just fed 5,000 in the wilderness and walked across the top of the Sea of Galilee, but they still ask him for a sign, right? And uh, here's what happens in Mark's gospel. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply. And he said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given it. You see, what the Pharisees wanted is they wanted some spectacular sign from heaven, something irrefutable and unmistakably God, like a big billboard in the sign saying, here is your Messiah, right there. They wanted something so compelling, so overwhelming, that faith was not required. But that's not God's way. God always allows choice. He always invites faith. So what is Christian faith? I want to say it's this. It is a commitment to belief based on evidence and supported by reason. You see, the way to God is always going to require a step of faith a move into something beyond ourselves. We actually entrust ourselves to God. It's a little bit like um, getting into a boat. You know when you get into a boat, you get to the end of the wharf and you actually have to take that step over the water and onto the boat. Okay? It's, that step is required. It's like getting married. You don't know the future, but knowing what you do know, you forsake all others. And so I wonder... Is believing something that you could do? Maybe that could be something new for you, even tonight. What Jesus does make very clear about Christian faith is that it has some very specific content. Um, Have a look at verse 31. See, it says, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The Son of God. So there's two things particularly that are the content of Christian faith. Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ, same word, and Jesus is the Son of God. These two terms would have been pretty well known to any any Jewish person who would have picked up John's Gospel to read it. They would have known those two terms pretty well. So the Messiah was a, a figure well known as the great son of David, you know, King David, best ever king we had of Israel, there is going to be one who's going to come after him who is going to rule over us in a time of national renewal, but it's going to go on and on forever. And ultimately this king, this Messiah, is is going to not just be a national king, the prophets have foretold that he is going to rule over all nations. And over all things. So this is just not Israel's saviour king. He's a king for the whole world. Um, The book of Isaiah has a lot to say about this Messiah figure. Um, Isaiah 9, for example. When when the Messiah comes, right, all wars will be ended. 
He is a wonderful counsellor. He is mighty God. He is the Prince of Peace. I love that title. Uh, when he comes, there will be everlasting justice. Be righteousness will rule. So this, this Messiah is going to rule and he's going to be like the guy that we really want to be in charge. So that's that first term, the Messiah, the Christ. The second term, son of God, it's kind of similar. It's another royal term, seems to refer to the king. And particularly in the Old Testament, this idea of the son of God was very much the king. Uh, so in 2 Samuel 7, when God's promising to David, there'll be lots of kings after you who'll come from your line, he promises that, God's, sorry, that David's successors will be like sons to God. Uh, in Psalm 2, God actually addresses the king as a son and says, you know what, I'm going to give you all of the nations as your inheritance. So there's this idea that, okay, son of God, king figure. But something really interesting has happened as we've read through John's Gospel. This idea of the Son of God has been extended. It's got greater significance. And in fact, by the time you get to the end of chapter 20 in John's Gospel, John's inescapable conclusion is that not only has Jesus revealed God, and unlike any of the other Jewish kings before him, actually... He's quite unique, not just because he's like God, but he's actually of the same substance as God. And he has this relationship with God as Father and he as Son to the point where God the Father treats him as an equal. He is singularly God's Son. He has the same nature as God, the same authority as God, he does the same work as God. He is God. And that's the conclusion that the Apostle Thomas comes to. Just a couple of verses back. We read about it last week, right? Confronted with the risen Jesus, sees the nails in his hands. What does Thomas say? He says, my Lord and my God. It's exactly that. That's the content of Christian faith right there. Okay, sort of Messiah, Lord. Son of God, God. That's, it's the same content of belief. All kind of summarized. So, we've come now, in verse 31, to the climax of John's Gospel. He's told us why he wrote the book. Here, of all of the things that Jesus did, all that he taught, all of his miracles, all of the signs, I've selected just these ones here for this particular purpose that you guys who've read my book will believe that Jesus is the Messiah and he's the Son of God, but there's more. There's actually a second part to the purpose, right? It's tied to the first bit. You've got to have the second bit if you have the first bit. That final phrase, that by believing you may have life in his name. The inseparable consequence of believing Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God is you have life in his name. Belief results in life. Now, I'm not um, an economist, but the economists who are the smart people tell me that there's this rule that goes like this. The, more, the scarcer a resource, the more valuable it becomes. 
You know how that one works, right? So, um, you know, like I've got a cup of water. It's not worth very much, just a cup of water, right? Um, but we're in drought. And we don't have as much water as we'd like to have and we actually need to conserve water. So, you know, we have restrictions and rules. That my cup of water is actually a little bit more valuable than it might have been if we weren't in drought, right? Let's say I'm in the desert and it's 45 degrees and I haven't had anything to drink all morning. How good is that cup of water looking? I'm dying of thirst over here. Cup of water, oh, wow, I really want that. So that's the principle, okay? You, all the economists were on board a few minutes ago. But okay, so the scarcer of the resource, the more valuable it is. My point is this. Our life is limited. And we're using it up every day. You might think, yeah, you know what? I got plenty. It's not a time of drought. I'm just young, right? I got lots of time. How do you know that? How do you know how many days you've got? I am. I visited my uncle this last week. Uh, he's in palliative care, which means he doesn't have long to go. Every day is very precious. Um, when he had lots of days left, or I thought he had lots of days left, I didn't visit him. I hadn't seen him for actually a few years, but it's like, oh my goodness, he's got this terrible cancer. And so I go, I'm straight there, I'm at the hospital. Time is important when you know that it's limited. His life and my life and your life is limited. And we're using it up every day. And if there was a way that we could extend life, if we could extend our lives, we'd do it, right? And if we could extend the life of somebody else's, you know, someone who we really love, if we could extend their life, we would pay anything. And John here is not talking about making our current life a little bit longer. He's talking about something way better. Okay, throughout this entire gospel, he has recorded Jesus' teachings and his promises all about the life of the age. Zoanaonion, okay, the life of the age. We usually translate it life eternal or eternal life. Okay, that's the way we normally talk about it. What Jesus is doing here, he hasn't just invented this, or this isn't anything like Eastern mysticism, right? Jesus is actually picking up a really important idea that has been developing all the way through the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, but all through the latter prophets. Okay? Do you remember the people of Israel? They, they, they were sort of carried off into exile, into Babylon, 70 years hard labor kind of thing. But they actually return back to Jerusalem. They, they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They rebuild their temple. They start sacrificing again. They're settled again in the land. And nothing else happens. It's pretty underwhelming. It's pretty quite disappointing. But through that time and as they encounter that experience, the prophets are still speaking. And the prophets are saying, the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. And remember we talked about Life comes with the Messiah. When he comes, the new age will begin. There will be life. But it won't be life like you know it now. It will be life. It will be the age. It will be the time when God rules perfectly and there will be no opposition. The wicked are going to be judged and they're going to be thrown out. Everything is actually going to be renewed. A new beginning where everything is right, where peace and justice and prosperity and rule. It talks about even creation, like even the earth, 
become super fertile. It's a whole new beginning. That period, that situation in life, is also what we call the kingdom of God. When the Messiah comes, life will change radically. That's when all of the promises of God will be fulfilled. That's when the rule of Messiah will never end. A little earlier I said that Jesus' resurrection was a sign. A sign points to something way more important. The final and greatest sign in John's gospel is not... You know, I mean, Jesus is not dead and he has risen. That's great. That's, the sign is pointing to something else. What he's saying is because Jesus is resurrected from the dead, a revolution has begun where death is defeated. Death has no more power to hold you down and to corrupt your body so that you are dead. <laughs> There's a whole new deal begun because Jesus is resurrected. The new age, the age where the Messiah rules, that is coming. That's been launched. The kingdom of God has arrived. Okay, our bodies, these ones, they will probably die the same way as Jesus' body died. But we, like Jesus, will rise again. We will be resurrected. New body, new deal. It's great. God brings believers into this new order of life. This new life where Jesus rules. And you know what? It's a definite thing. It's a real event. It's a real crossover that takes place in the life of anybody who believes. Listen to Jesus talk about it in uh, chapter 5 of John's Gospel. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and he's given him authority to judge because he's the Son of Man. So God gives this kingdom life, an entirely new life, to replace the natural, limited, diminishing life that we began with. This is the new life of the next age. That is to come when Jesus returns. This is life in relationship with God under the rule of the Messiah without end in a new creation. And it begins now. The revolution began when Jesus rose from the dead. And that life, that eternal life, that's actually the fulfillment of everything that God has ever promised. Do you know that the reason you even exist is so that you can have eternal life? Why are you here on this earth? 
Well, God made you so that you could have eternal life. I kind of wondered through the week, why wouldn't God give us a little bit more to go on? Uh, you know, like some more specifics about what eternal life would be like. Wouldn't that be cool if we dug up, you know, some ancient text and we found, oh, here's Revelation chapter 23 through 50. And it gives us the whole deal. Like, here's exactly what eternal life is going to look like. Wouldn't that be good? And I thought about that some more and I thought, no, actually it wouldn't be very good at all. Because you know what I would do? I would look through that and I would, well, it would have to be dumbed down for me to get it. And in my human fallenness, I would kind of put it under the microscope and i go, that's not very impressive. You know, I, I, I'm not really looking forward to that. God has given us just a glimpse of what this life beyond this life is going to be like. And any attempt to kind of clarify it too much is going to dumb it down. Do you know, if God is infinitely greater than we are, if God has created this cosmos that we heard so much about last week, that is just mind-blowingly big and apparently getting bigger, why would I think I can understand eternal life now? And so, at the end of seven months of John's Gospel, we started the first Sunday in December last year. Here we are in July. We have been working our way patiently through John's Gospel all that time. At the end of seven months, immersing ourselves in John's Gospel, at the climax of the book, here we are, the punchline. I want to ask everybody here, do you believe in Jesus? Do you want to have life? The life that God gives. I said before that belief in Jesus always gets to this point where you actually make a commitment. Actually make a decision. A commitment of the will where you stop trusting your own competency, your own ability, and instead you entrust yourself to God entirely. Where you say, I believe you, Jesus. You are the Messiah. And you are the Son of God. I'm wondering if this is something that you would like to maybe talk about a little bit more, maybe personally. Um, what I've decided to do is I asked um, Ness and, and Mel if they would just kind of stick around and hang out over in the side over here. I'm going to hang out over here. If you want to talk about this some more, about how you might make that step, then we'll be there for you after the service. Everyone else will be chatting around, do what we normally do. It looks like there's supper are going to be available at the back. I'm excited for that. So come and sit and talk if you'd like to. There's no pressure. But if you do decide to put your faith in Jesus, know that you are simply doing what John hoped you would do when he wrote this gospel. He wrote these things so that we would believe. And that by believing, we would have life in his name. 